brief intro. This is Fam Electric Ghost, where we interview independent artists from around the world uh, on our podcast. And tonight we have the experimental rock hip hop band Space Adaptation Syndrome from Orlando, Florida. And uh, we're glad to have you guys on the program. Thank you so much. Awesome. Glad to be on the on the program. Yeah, so we sent you the question. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us. Oh, no problem. Yeah, it's great. We, we've been we've been doubling down on our interviews during this kind of coronavirus crisis, and it's been giving bands like a good opportunity to still connect with their fans if they can't do shows and stuff, you know. Um, oh yeah, so, no, thank you. So we sent you the questions, and since we have a full band here, I don't know who wants to answer the first question that we always ask any artist we talk to. When did you first get into music and at what age, which band member wants to take that on first? Um, I could go first if, um, if anyone else doesn't mind. But yeah, I got into music as early as I can remember. Um, I like to say that I get it from my mother and, you know, like I was already dancing in the womb. My first chord was an umbilical chord. But I uh, know it goes from there. Just I think, you know, just having the love from my family according the music. I think I had it all my childhood. And just growing up with it and but seriously getting into music and writing and getting into other folks is like when I was a kid at least at least 10 or 11 years old and like that's when like rock band came out and when rock band came out that's when it gave me like a solid like confidence that's that's pretty cool so um maybe whoever else is on the line maybe turn yours down a little bit too i'm still hearing some feedback Okay, that sounds a little better. Thank you. So, who who else wants to take that question on? Um, I guess I'll go uh, next. So, I started like playing guitar when I was um eleven. Um, I uh, I was like a big like fan of the Beatles. Like my dad had like uh, you know the uh, the Beatles anthology documentary, and I remember like just like always watching that. And there was a you know always a guitar around, but like one day I just like was like you know what I'm just gonna like just gonna i'm just gonna do this now and so it was like the most anticlimactic, like life-changing decision of my life so um yeah it was it was, it was good and uh, i was 11 so that's interesting the beatles even today uh, i've talked to maybe like 50 artists in the last two years and the beatles comes up like 50 percent of the time um <laughs> so their, their their influence on song songwriters from multiple genres, you know, is still strong, which is interesting. Um, yeah, so who wants to take on that? The last one. Uh, uh, um, well, for me, I come from like a bit of a different background than these guys. I'm mostly like a hip hop guy. So I started yeah. writing poetry when I was like very young. And I'd say the first artist that really made me want to start rapping was Jay-Z. Once I heard him, I was like, whoa, this is like poetry in like a whole cooler type way. And it really like pushed me to start writing my own stuff like in a musical way. But I always had a love for like putting words together. So what kind of poets did you did, did you look up to besides like hip hop um, poetry? Were you into like, like Harlem Renaissance poets or beat poets or, you know? <laughs> That if you the were... thing was, I was so young. It was more like I learned about. It was probably in like 
second or third grade, we were just learning about poetry, just, you know, just, you know, how they do in elementary school. And I just really liked putting words together just from that aspect. I didn't really have many influences. I was just like, wow, I really enjoyed putting words together. And then when I started listening to more hip hop, I was like, oh, this basically is poetry. So I guess like the rappers were my first real introduction to poetry, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because like the old school, hip, you know, hip hop, if I they go back, you know, to to like the public enemies of the world and Boogie Down Productions and stuff like that, I think the poetry was like really the primary focus back then. And, and just the rhyme. Yes, stuff. exactly. Yeah, listen to something like The Message and you're like, wow, that, that that's pretty significant. Um, and the interesting thing is it kind of pulls the kind of storytelling that you get from guys like Dylan or you know in the rock world you know bob dylan they, they were very much into very literate type of songwriting and rap and hip-hop has a lot of those elements because you tell it's usually telling a story that's pretty deep and it has a lot of a lot of a lot a lot of character to it and a lot of a lot of passion to it and it's not just like a typical song structure so it's interesting that you guys are taking um the sounds that you have which are somewhat progressive rock with hip hop and that's very experimental and that's kind of totally in my zone <laughs> um, of what awesome. I like to do myself. But, but um, yeah, so the next question I, I always ask everybody, so how long have you been working on music? And I guess in this case, like when did you guys start realizing you wanted to write your own music? Oh my gosh. That's, yeah, such a, I, I honestly would like to think of it when I started joining other human souls and just getting together. Is there an echo at all? Yeah, there's a little bit of an echo. I don't know if it's doubling. Maybe somebody else has got their phone on. So it's like maybe in the same room, kind of push, take one of the phones away from it, from, make sure there's not two phones next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> push that. Hello? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I still hear I think, you. I think I know. Um, so continue off your with your question um yeah no like i said um when rock band came out it was like and it, it was like a physical and a spiritual experience because you get the two with the divine mind with the physical body and the dream that come to one really and so rock band or yeah rock band was like uh, like a physical thing like oh i have something that's interesting so then i went to like this band camp when i was really young and I um, started like just jamming with other people. And that's, that was like when I was like 13, 14. And then we just started jamming and actually started making solid parts. That's interesting. So the, you're talking about the actual video game rock band, right? Yeah, it's so great. Cause I, I looked it up. Um, I forgot what year, but I think it came out in 07. Yeah, yeah. I used to jam on that with my dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, so my, my dad did the, the lead guitar, and yeah, I did the drums. And... Yeah, my daughter did the drums, and I did the guitar. Yeah, there we yeah. go. <laughs> and where did you play the it was a good way to Yeah, it was a good way to get kids to think, you know, music was fun, you know? Exactly. And it's sort of sad that, like, that could be the future of music in a way. That's what I sort of try to do yeah yeah but you know that's that's who wants to go yeah who wants to you want to keep on going you somebody else want to jump in yeah i'll i'll, I'll jump in yeah so for me it was like kind of weird because uh, 
I mean, for for a while as a as a guitar like a younger guitar player, all I did was just like wearing covers. Like, uh, it was it started out like like I guess like like metal stuff. Like I was big into metal, and then uh, from there I, I kind of got into like progressive rock. And uh, I had this really negative experience with this um, jazz band, uh, band director when I was in middle school, and um, that kind of like made me uh, like really hate improvisations. So for a while, I was like. Not that I didn't like want to write music, but I I wasn't like I feel like improvisation is a big part of the creative process, and I felt like I was like neglecting it. But then like I started getting into bands like um, I don't know like the Almond Brothers and stuff like that, and I started listening to like, jazz music too. Like um, I think like in tenth grade I started listening to, like Miles Davis, like uh, specifically albums like yeah. In a Silent Way, and uh, I don't I don't know if I can say it on here. It's you it's you know keyword brew. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I'm a big um, fan of Sun Ra and I used to go see the Almonds when they were playing, you know, I'm in my 50s, but um, I've, I've seen a bunch of Almond Brothers concerts and then just watching, you know, Greg Almond on a Hammond B3 organ and then, you know, I had a, a big love of, of, you know, bands like Funkadelic, which were, you know, a progressive funk band, um, a psychedelic funk band and the idea of like mixing rock like what Davis did on Bitches Brews, you know, having that fusion rock kind of jazz thing was always something that the Almonds kind of integrated. And you get bands like Steely Dan that do like an integration between jazz and rock. And that's always been a big, you know, being a keyboardist, they tends to, we tend to kind of go there because it's just like if you're going to dive deep into keyboards, you're going to tend to go classical, jazz, or progressive to try to get your chops. <laughs> um, and then you can get into rock once you have like your skill set. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting where people come from. And you guys are, are doing some very experimental stuff, which is pretty cool. And you know, you, you name checked uh, in your background that King Crimson. And I, I, I mean, that I know who they are and I'm a big fan of them, but they, you're probably like the first interview in like 40 interviews that mentioned that band. Wow. Uh, yeah. No, for me. So, I mean, that's kind of sad because I, I love bands like that, but that's kind of cool that you guys actually are in that mindset. Oh, yeah. Well, for me, Fripp is, uh, that's my favorite guitar player of all time. Like, uh, he's, I think he's in a way, like, I, I, it's going to sound pompous, but he's very much like a, he's a postmodern guitarist in a way, you know. In the 70s, you had all these guys that were, you know, with long hair and uh, were trying to, like, just, like, you know, playing, like, uh, I don't know, like, more, like, it, it was, like, you know, funk stuff, or, like, all that stuff. And he was just, like, you know, uh, screw that. I'm going to do this, like, weird, like, Bella Bartok, like, you know, fusion, you know, modern classical fusion. And it, it was, you know, it was a unique thing. And he was also influenced a lot by, like, you know, like Miles Davis and, um, you know, a lot of jazz fusion guys like that. They were kind of, like, all doing the same they're all like starting to get like, yeah. more into like um, like mysticism, as well as like, uh, yeah. weird like modern harmony ideas. Um, and I guess going back to bitches brew like um, that's like especially like the chord voicing choices that Chikria and Joe uh, Zawanu like made like have been like a huge like influence on me like as a harmonic player as a guitar player. That's interesting because I'm a big fan of guys like Brian Eno and. Um... Daniel Lenoir and, and the producers that are more willing to go in that kind of jazz fusion direction or experimental direction, like what Eno did with Bowie, like in his Berlin phase, the very same stuff that was going on there. And I've, you know, I've been 
I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of like bands like Yes and Peter Gabriel Genesis, where you, you, you had like this like rock opera <laughs> and, and very interesting uh, time changes and uh, you know it's, it, just the, the the willingness to go anywhere the music was going to bring you um, is more what I would rather than trying to do like a traditional three minute rock and roll hit was always like the the way I always tend to to want to write. So it's interesting when I find people who are in that mindset. <laughs> um, so the next question I usually ask bands is, um, like, who are who are your um, your influences and reference points? I kind of mentioned some of them, but maybe you could talk more about that. Who wants to go? Oh, did I lose? Uh, I'll go. Um, for for me. Uh, Jay-Z is probably my favorite artist. He he inspired me to, like, you know, take lyrics, like, very, very seriously. And artists like uh, like Nas, Tupac, uh, Mob Deep, you know, like, the, the 90s stuff. Yeah. But as I got older, I, like, a big artist that had a really big influence on me wanting to go more experimental was Danny Brown. Because he was, like, incorporating, like like industrial sounds with like rock, but still hip hop and just his voice. Like it was just like completely different than a lot of the stuff I was hearing. And that made me kind of be like, there's really no boundaries to this. Like, and it kind of made me want to kind of incorporate many different sounds. Like that's kind of what made me want to start working with these guys. Cause they were doing something so different than I was doing. So Danny Brown definitely is one of the biggest influence on, influences on me. Yeah, I, I see that. You always guys you guys also mentioned like Mars Volta, which I hear um in, in your sound too. Um are you able to hear us? I can hear you guys. Okay. Yeah, no, Mars Volta's uh been a big influence on me, especially just like um uh especially just like the way that like Omar Rodriguez Lopez like writes he writes in this very kind of like kaleidoscopic way where it's almost like um like I mean you look at guys like William S. Burroughs and he does like a lot of cut up technique and uh uses like a lot of dub techniques where he'll have the musicians like record to like just the bass part but they won't like know what each other they don't know like what they're all playing so like then when you put it all together it's like kind of like this whole thing that none of them could have predicted would happen. You know? That's interesting. I was watching a documentary of Peter Gabriel and he was talking about how sometimes in the studio, they actually, one time they put down a bunch of drum takes, like 99 drum takes. And then they went and took the actual analog tape and cut it and spliced it kind of haphazardly around just to see what would happen. And they and they, they, they actually, you know, went through taking it straight and then they liked this kind of cut up of actually physically splicing the tape and taking different drum, um, you know, parts from different days, and uh, you know, the week or different times and finding that, that that gave them what they were looking for. And that's kind of like the experimentation that George Martin, you know, did with the Beatles, uh, with, you know, a lot of the, the work they see on Sgt. Pepper and the later in the Abbey Road that kind of that kind of experimentation that you know you, later you see like Hendrix Dewey you see Tangerine Dream you see like Yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer they all start going in these kind of directions yeah exactly because you know you can only do so much with instruments and you can still keep moving on and growing with instruments you, we see like 
how the electric world is sort of, you know, always been infused with music, but now it's you know, a big part of it, you know, MIDI, of course, but then all octopads on drums and electric drums. And it's just cool how we can incorporate um, multiple genres and into one uh, song with like multiple, you know, sounds and uh, the future holds. Yeah, I think genre mixing seems to be the big thing today. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of artists that are mixing like jazz with hip hop or mixing, you know, psychedelic or progressive rock with hip hop or, you know, other forms of electronic music like EDM artists actually working with like a punk rock band or a grunge band. And it seems like this kind of cross pollination mm-hmm. is really cool because like, like, you know, they got people out there. I'm a synthesis, right? So you got people who say, oh, and I have modes, but I have digital synths too. And I'll see guys saying, well, I only am going to play analog synths. Like, and I, have, I love my analog synths, but sometimes I want to play a digital synth because it can do something different. Oh, yeah. And you, take, and you take what your tools are, right? As a keyboardist, you got a Hammond B3, you got a Yamaha piano, and then you got your Moog, and then maybe you have a Phantom or something or a Korg. You, you take what each one of those can do to service the song. You know, and maybe some songs have more or less of e- either one. You know, you just take whatever you got to do. You take samples, you take loops, you take clips, you do a DAW, you don't use a DAW, you use tape. It's kind of like whatever services the song is how you should look at it, you know, mm-hmm. rather than saying, I'm only going to be an analog artist or I'm only going to be a digital artist or I'm only going to be this. And I think it seems to be more people are, are deciding to kind of break the barriers and cross between. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And uh, like for me, like I, um, I I try to have like as much of like a hybrid hybridized like workflow as much as possible. I, I feel like um, there's a lot of people that like want to fetishize um, like analog equipment, like tube amplifiers and like using tape and stuff like that. And I just I, I just think that that's like very archaic. And um, I think people are closing themselves to like a lot of possibilities. Um, like me personally, I mainly use logic that's like my main dad that I produce with. And um, I feel like it, honestly, I can do a lot more with that than I, like I could like with my tape machines that I have, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I like using like, in my, in my workflow, I use like hardware, like Zoom, like L20s and L20, R24s. And I capture all my stuff in a kind of old fashioned way of like, just putting them down into these like digital tape machines. But then it kind of forces me to do, have some limitations in terms of what I can do, but it then it can capture some of my analog stuff and my digital stuff in a, in a kind of a, in a way that's kind of like a, a free jazz or jam band style of recording. Mm-hmm. And I just, that's just the way I choose to record because I, I would like to get my analog sense to do analog loops through LFO modulation and things like that. And you can get a lot of cool things to happen in that kind of modular Eurorack world. But then the stuff, I have a teenage engineering OPZ and OP, OP1. And, and I'll, I'll do stuff with that or use like, a, you know, an Akai MPC if I need to use that. But it's kind of like, I, I like hardware. And I understand that there's a lot of stuff you can do with the DAWs. But I kind of kind of put myself in this kind of zone where I like having the freedom to kind of just do whatever I want uh, with, with hardware recording. But... It, I understand that the dog opens up a lot and yeah. I'm opposed to using it, but there's a lot of cool things you can do. 
Yeah, exactly. Because the hardware, you can physically touch more things and have more mechanical mind, you know, having it right in front of you, feeling it and moving with it. Because, you know, sometimes in the digital world, we could get sort of sidetracked and lost without seeing it right in front of us. Because I, I come from a, like a mechanical background and like, you know, you I, I, I tend to look at things that like the, the structure and the form of it and, and then also just the flow and the feel. But then also just having this equipment, it, it takes a lot of space, expensive. Like, yeah, I wish I had all this stuff, honestly. Yeah, I mean, the cool thing is that with, with a laptop and logic, you can put together a, a theoretical or virtual version of what I do with my Moogs or my Eurorex. But there's one thing that, like you said, if you have those surface controls and you roll the tape, you can get stuff in the moment that is like, mm-hmm. like, a, like a painting. I kind of look at like George Martin once said that I could have recorded the Beatles the way they were playing in, in Berlin, but I chose to look at them like a, like Monet looks at a painting, right? An expressionist painting. And I used the studio to interpret the sound and I'm not going to give you what a live performance is. I'm going to give you an album, which is more of a sound painting. And I like the idea of, of, of doing sound paintings. And however you get to that, whether it's a doll or using surface controls or, you know, not per function on, a, on an analog synth or getting really detailed in a DAW and getting to that same point. I, I've all, I just like anybody that has the kind of artistic drive to make the sound a little bit more than what you could do live. Exactly. No, I, I agree. And I kind of like want to add something to that, which is uh, Joe Walsh. Uh, I mean, I guess like the thing with DAWs, and I, I kind of agree with like Dimitri is that it's very easy to get sidetracked. And I feel like that's something I've run across with a lot of musicians uh, that produce uh, that mainly do focus on just using a, like a, a DAW is that they become perfectionists and that gets in the way of them wanting yeah. to, um, that, that just gets in the way of their productivity. And I, I feel like for me, uh, like I, I always like try to just like, just like when I write music, like I literally just like just jot it down at the top of my head even if I don't like it, then I'll give it like a day. And I try to like have that analog, like an analog mindset of like, okay, this is not going to be perfect, but I'm just going to let this ride out, you know? Yeah, I think that's the one thing I would say uh, that the DAW has kind of ruined in music in some ways is that spontaneity and happy accidents that you would get if you went to a recording studio and you're sitting next to a producer like a guy like a Brian Eno, he's going to go and this, like, we'll go off the wall and change the key. He's going to go up on the board and say, why don't you just throw these notes together or these parts together just because that's what I think would sound right and not that some computer is going to tell you it's the wrong BPM or it's the wrong key where you're trying to make it sound perfect. That sometimes like, if the happy accents or the things that are slightly off in, in, in music history, there's many, many examples of famous albums where you know, the accident actually made the song. And if you tried to make it perfect, it would actually not sound as good as if you actually, you know, if that perfection shouldn't be necessarily the goal. It's like the goal should be the, like to serve the song. <laughs> if you get, if you know what I mean. Oh, I think we lost uh, one of you guys. I think we still have Amari. Okay. Yeah. I'm still here. Uh, yeah, and I don't know guys, what happened. The other guys dropped off. I'll have to try to bring them back in. Um, like I think they can try to come back in, but since their connection must have dropped. But um, 
So let's let's continue the the interview um, with with you, and we'll talk to you about the next uh, questions that we had. And see if we can get them to come back in. Oh, um, I think. Oh, here you guys. Are you back, Connor? Yeah. Right, cool. You guys back? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you dropped a little bit, but um, yeah, I was gonna get on to the next question. Um, what would you consider your your writing style or your genre? Like, when you guys come together as a band. Does one guy like write the majority of the song? Is like like a key songwriter in your band, or do you all kind of bring all the elements of the song together? Or do you like work off to the side and then come together? Do you always create together, or is it a combination of many different ways of doing it? I like our our relationship because like we all have such respect for what each other do, so it's like. I kind of just let them do the music aspect and then they bring me the music and then I just write the lyrics to it. So it, I kind of like it that way because I don't, not that it, you can step on toes in a way, but when you are all kind of doing different things, it kind of makes it an easier mesh versus if we were all kind of trying to put everything together, put everything together all at once so they kind of just do the music and once they have what they like they give it to me and then i just do my thing lyrically over it so when you get a piece of music from the other guys do you kind of do you try to make some way do you have a lot of like books full of like lyrics and things you're working on and then you try to see what's going to fit or do you kind of just listen to what it is and maybe come up with it or as a combination of yeah, maybe I have all this reference material. Maybe this works from this project or this page. Or how, what's your process? Oh, that's a good question. It's honestly a mixture of both. I sometimes will like jot down some lyrics that I like, just like you know, just writing them down. And if it works, I'll like add it to some tracks. But I normally like to like let the music influence my lyrics because I feel like it comes off more organic and authentic when I can just like hear the music and then let the words come from that. That's my favorite way to do it, honestly. Yeah. I find that sometimes what I call it stream of consciousness type of the initial take, like if you're a songwriter and you get in with, you know, you hear the music and you start to put your vocals down, you say, you know what, I'm just going to free flow it, let the tape run and then go back and then look at it and say, okay, well I can take this or I can leave that. And you kind of exactly you, kind of, you hear what you hear, and you you know you feel what you feel. Definitely, freestyling is very important to my craft. I feel like freestyling writing because when you're freestyling, you sometimes get a flow that you never could get if you just wrote it down and then tried to do it. Because, like you said, it's just like you're it's like you're feeling off the music. It's like you're combining into one. So sometimes I'll just hear something and I'll just freestyle on it and I'll listen back and be like, yo, I really like that part and I'll keep that and then I'll freestyle again and be like, oh, I like that part and then put it together. That's interesting. It's another little history. I was watching a, like a, a documentary on Frank Zappa and Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention and his famous album, like Apostrophe. And he was talking about how he had this massive catalog of all the live recordings of the Mothers of Invention. Every time they went somewhere, they taped it. And then he would go back to his house and then listen to the tapes and then grab bits from from the freestyle live concerts and then say, hey, yeah, that worked. I, I can turn that into something. And and he found it like live, that live kind of method of just capturing all this live raw um, performance tended to give him very authentic 
and you know you know really honest um compositions that you know when he sometimes he could sit down and write something very intricate but he always liked the stuff that he grabbed from the concerts and molded together <laughs> which was interesting yeah, that's awesome i agree 100 yeah, percent. and like the, the, yeah, we so also uh we also have a connection we play live together as well and um we have this other project called the other jam podcast and that's where we like all just come to improvisation and come to like learn uh like how how you were saying just we create these like tunes and music that just comes up out of nowhere from space and like we just have a like a scene uh like an a, like a sequence yeah i think that's really i mean I, i'm a big i was a big fan of van morrison's bands back in the late 60s and 70s and he was very much into this kind of expressionist you know, kind of jam free jazz thinking of, of doing like you listen to Moon Dance, you listen to Astro Weeks. There's this kind of free flowing thing. He could just kind of start throwing in all this Celtic mysticism. And he would just start talking about King Arthur. He'd start talking about the row. He'd start talking about all these like Victorian poets and all these weird, you know, Celtic stories or stories from, you know, Scotland and Ireland and, you know, all kinds of. Authorian mysticism, he just throw it in until he was reading you know, his own personal reading, he just had that in his head. And then he would hear something and say, Well, that's gonna that that'll work. <laughs> so I was always like, That's 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 I think that's that's kind of free flow is hard to see today with so many people. Like, when we get back to like if you're in the DAW and 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 you're not using it in the way that we're talking about, you kind of get locked into the beat or the clip. We're trying to find that perfect, you know, groove. And then you're not doing the kind of experimental work that you guys are doing, which is kind of my, my love. I, I love a good beat that somebody puts together on an 808 or a 909 or a 727 or a Lynn drum machine or whatever they're using. And I like, you know, clip-based production that people do today. But I, I would always say I'm probably always going to be more of a Sun Ra, you know, Lennon McCartney, Davis Kyle of recording is always going to really t t touch my heartstrings mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that we're that uh, we're really losing that organic nature a lot nowadays, and um, I definitely feel like a lot of music is is like very overprocessed. I mean, there's definitely like artists are still like um, like you know guys like Flying Lotus, like even though it's like very produced in a dot, he gets guys like Thundercat in there. You know, and he even had Herbie Hancock on there, and he's trying to like, in, you know, yeah. integrate, you know, uh, high, the very high tech with, I guess the, you know, the organic, like you, like you said, stream of consciousness nature of jazz. You know what I mean? Yeah, you take the, you take, you take the Dawes capability to be your like twenty-four track recorder. Yes, and then you still bring in some of those great improvisational characteristics that you can get out of free jazz and progressive rock. And it's in funk. And if you can bring funk, progressive rock, and jazz, and then bring hip hop into it, then yeah, you can take advantage of the DAW and not get you know down the rabbit hole or trying to get it super clean. Because mm. <laughs> I think you know funk was always like you know Bootsy like you got to get it, you got to get it to be like that dirty funk, like George Clinton. You got to get it to be kind of like that. That's the whole point. <laughs> exactly. You want to hear those scratches and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's interesting. So, um, 
when you guys are, are we recording in the door, you guys are using like logic. Is that what you said you're using? Yeah. So normally like I'll uh, literally just like uh, record. Um, I'll kind of like have a, like I'll come up with like a structure, like a, a for the song uh, with just like guitar parts and bass parts. And I'll have like a, a temp, like basic drum track. And then I, I do that all in logic, but I don't really use synths. Um, Right. I mean, I have like a couple synths in the track, but it's literally just guitar based. And um, then I'll bounce those out, send it to Dimitri. He works um, in Ableton. Um, and then uh, once we have the drum, the drums in it, and his drum tracks always like make the track like 20, 30 times better. Um, and then, you know, we, Dimitri, uh, uh, Myri comes in and uh, then we'll just like, you know, finish like tracking the vocals like over at my place in Logic. That's, that's an interesting workflow. We use those two tools together. Yeah. So, so, so are you guys like very focused? Like some bands, I was watching this another documentary on like Metallica, and they they in their early career they were highly focused on getting the perfect drum track, and they would be like in isolation trying to get that drum track and not actually play as a band when they recorded the song, and I guess the Black Album. They they radically changed that to go back to like playing as a like a full unit to get the feel of the songs a little bit more to like what it would sound like. So have you guys like played with like recording as a full band, or are you still are you kind of into the, the recording technique of trying to get like the the drums and the bass and you know the, the percussion tracks down in se in separation from the recording it as a full unit um right uh i think like right now i think it's like uh we would we would do that and, like we do kind of do that with our uh like a, like uh dimitri was saying like with our like kind of like uh, uh what we call the other jam podcast where we just kind of like improvise but um i think yeah yeah no we yeah sorry. I, I love i see what you're you're saying because I, I love that live uh, recording and all together and I feel that that huge difference when I'm playing live with any members and like talented musicians in the same room and just sharing that energy it's, you know we all feel it when we go see a live show you know you just feel the, the liveness and the energy so but and if you're really in tune with yourself you can really just bounce up and like you said create like a more of a song feel and it creates more of a whole round and uh, yeah for now I think it sort of helps us with all our schedules and um, like I'm blessed to have like a studio at my house to record drums and you know yeah, yeah. like a nice room to record drums in and like you said, I put it in through live and then yeah because I, I I do just run through the song over and over just until I feel that liveness and then create these parts yeah I think it's like a, it's a recording kind of engineer school the idea like musical theory of production that if you separate the tracks and you you know you get the vocalist in the booth you get the drummer in, in, a, in a drum room mic'd up right you don't have the bleed from the guitars or the bass coming in so you know but you run into different producers that will argue you know with different points and it's never there's no one right answer it's like again it's kind of like different projects or different songs require different recording techniques yeah exactly and some, some, some projects might require you to kind of have a full band other projects are so focused on the rhythm that you really got to get it 
exactly right and you have to have that kind of separation to get it perfect and so i i get that you know i've been, I've been playing since i was 17 <laughs> and i i did the old you know in the bay basement in the garage with a task gamma or a fostex and you know cheap mics and get all the bleed coming over i, I understand why you would want to separate out <laughs> yeah and get it tight. And I also, I also blame my ADD because, like, I, it helped me focus more, too, to be honest, you know, just to stay in, like, a cave and just, just to get it down in my brain. And, and I love what Connor taught me when I first when – I, when I joined the group. And he was just like, just do it, you know, just get into it. Don't even think about it. Just put yourself into it. And in a way, that's what we do if we played live together. But it's cool that you guys are doing kind of both, that you have, like, like – you're kind of like the way Parliament – and Funkadelic, you know, they had two different bands. And, you know, the same guys were in both bands. And, you know, one of them was psychedelic and one of them was more funk. So one more rock-based and one more funk-based. And, you know, the guys would do different ways of recording. If they were going to put down the funk tracks, they would do a little bit more, like, Motown recording. If they're doing the more, like, rock psychedelic tracks, they're doing more like what, what Hendrix would do. You know, but, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting when you have 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 so much material or so many different ideas that you can break out into two different projects. I've always been very interested in bands that do that. Oh, yeah. That's so fun. It's, it's, it's so fun. Cause like you said, it's, it's sort of like a new toy when you have new instruments and like these new synthesizers and all these, this uh, like machinery and instruments and, and like create something like that, that, that hasn't been there before because of the tools you have. And it's so cool when you have these different bands. It's like a, a totally new baby, a totally new project that you can create. Yeah, it's kind of like if you go back in the day, like with Funkadelic. I mean, Funkadelic is kind of like the basis of all modern hip-hop. They they were heavily sampled what Bootsy put down, what Bernie Worrell was putting down on the Moogs um, and the B3s. It's like that's been like the, 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 the like, uh, you know, the whole... Uh, I don't know the magic sauce and the, the whole you know, magic piece of everything that people have been using from funk to hip hop to you know all modern electronic. I probably owes a lot to what Boosie and Bernie would and George would do. Oh, yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting that you know those tools in the hands of like Bernie Worrell, a Moog is more of a bass tool, but in the hands of like Emerson. Um, Keith Emerson is more of like a lead. Um, and so you see the different uses of the same synthesizer widely vary between a funk band and a progressive rock band. Oh, yeah. And yeah, Bernie Worrell. Uh, God, yeah, I love Bernie Worrell. He was a he's actually a, a huge influence of, of mine, like like personally, even though like, you know, I'm a guitar player, but um, I try to like use effects pedals the same way he like experimental with, like you said, like the Moog, like on tracks like you know uh, aqua boogie and stuff like that where he was like like you said he was trying to create like a like a like a bass a bass sound and uh i don't know i just feel like he was like so, like his role in that in both those projects was like extremely underrated and actually i mean amiri have a band called uh Prof of fool as well and uh the song's called return of the wizard of Woo, which is like a like a little little reference to uh to bernie Weil, you know yeah well, Bernie, yeah. I mean, a lot of people always name check, like, you know, uh, you know, Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman. Then they forget to mention 
how significant the mode use, the, his use of the mode is, is just as like vital as anything Emerson did. Um, um, because if you look at what he was able to do to extend the instrument, uh, to, 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 you know, he did a mass, amazing leads and amazing, um, you know, he basically, you know, he went to Berkeley and he had would have been trained in classical composition. So a lot of the structure of Parlo and Funkadelic songs that have this kind of progressive rock structure mixed with funk are because of his capabilities to, to know how to voice the chords and what to do to, to kind of make the songs more interesting. Um, yeah, it's totally sometimes an un, unsung hero of that type of music. So it's cool that you're in, into it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, well, he was kind of like, um, I, this can sound weird, but he's kind of like a, like a shaman in a lot of ways. And he's, he is like such, such a futurist. Like I hear like a lot of like Cecil Taylor in his playing because he, he comes up with these very like interesting, like rhythmic, like, like synth parts that are just like, they just like come out of nowhere that, um, that you're, you're like, wow, like how did, how did he come up with, with that? You know what I mean? And yeah, I mean, he's the guy that got me into wanting to have modes. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why I have the modes I have because I, I can't find that. Man, I love rolling Jupiters and I, you know, Jupiter sixes and Jupiter eights and one Oh sixes and Roland's have, have a good history in, in, in this type of music as well. But there's something about the mode that when you really get to the bass tones, they can pull and the leads they can do. And the, and just this, you know, just overall uh, synth power of a mode when you've got maybe a three oscillator mode, what, what it can do to this day, it, it's hard to replicate. Even the profit fives, they don't sound the same. It's a different tone. Um, you, you do it, you use it for different things. Like a profit five, I, I, I use it for, for more, you know, pads because that's really what it's for. But it can do leads, but I, I tend to do my leads on modes uh, just because I'm, I'm, I'm a mode guy that way. <laughs> no, I love most too. They're, those are, they're just like such beautiful instruments. Like you said, like when you have like a, like three oscillators going, like it creates like such this rich, uh, like texture and it, but it still sounds like so organic. Like it's not like other synthesizers where it sounds, it not, I don't want to say like fake, but it's got like this uncanny valley type of effect. It, it really sounds like a, like an actual yeah, like instrument. Yeah, it doesn't, it sounds like its own acoustic instrument, yeah. you know? That it's not, you know, unlike some synths that can replicate, like I can get my Roland to replicate pianos, I can get it to replicate strings, but if I do a string on my Moog, it doesn't sound like any real string that you ever heard. It, it, it's actually something different. And that's kind of like the point in the sound design on synthesizers. When you get into sound design, it, the point is sometimes to, to not try to sound like real life or to sound like something else. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like what you're, what you're trying to do, you know. But um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, the the, the rabbit holes you can get into with that. I, I could go on for that forever on that. But um, when before the coronavirus hit, you guys said you were playing live. Like, where were you playing? And um, like, how are you coping with not being able to do live shows? And what what are your like strategies for for handling you know like the current state of the music industry? Um. So like we we were me and Amari were playing with with our, with our project uh, Prof of Fool and um, we, were, we were playing like a like a like a decent amount of shows like not not too many it was like uh, it was it was just really hard hard to get like a hold of like a like a lot of a lot of booking like agents like in Orlando um, you know but 
now that we're, I mean, we, we did get like definitely like a, a decent amount of attention when we were playing live, but um, now with COVID, I think we, we well, the main focus became on Instagram and us like just trying to build like a following through like social media. Cause you know, now that like it's harder to like play shows with, you know, the, the pandemic, it's like, well, we might as well like work with what we have to still like try to get our music out there, you know? Yeah, I mean, it seems like like interesting in Florida. I would think it's like a real heavy DJ EDM kind of trance electronica type of, or maybe hip, traditional hip hop. Is that what's going on in the club scene there? And it's harder for like a progressive band like yourself to, to maybe not that you can't find places to play, but maybe the, the trend is not what you're doing. Yeah, I, I just think that like um, the nature of Orlando, it's it's definitely yeah, like the focus is a lot more on like. Um, like dance music, you know, which is cool, and I, and I love that. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, and we've been like thinking about possibly like playing in other cities and stuff like that, because um, I, I definitely feel like that uh, maybe like our music would would fit in a little bit better in other places. And you know, I think like in Los Angeles and New York City, uh, yeah, there, there's crowds there into like very progressive experimental stuff going back to like you know the talking heads days bad cbgbs and stuff like that uh you know being able to play clubs like in new york city that are very into um oh you know progressive music or they're, they're into something different um and so there, there's so many different clubs in new york city that are into that um that you guys would probably do very well there um also like overseas if, if you went to london or berlin or in hey. Netherlands, Netherlands uh, you know, uh, Norway, Sweden, th- those those areas. Even Tokyo. I was in Tokyo for a while. Tokyo is into everything. Oh, I know. You We're talking about trying to get our stuff overseas. Like we were thinking, like our sound would definitely flourish overseas. So that's funny you brought that up. Yeah, in Tokyo, you guys could you could go to Shibuya. You'd be playing every night. Really, I'm down. Let's do it. Yeah, we've been. It's, it's funny you bring up Berlin because um, that's like the one place specifically that we've kind of like uh, thought about because, you know, we're, we're starting to talk with some like musicians over there. And um, I don't know, just like the way that the scene, like it seems over there, it just seems like you said, like it's focused like on more, it's, it's a, I don't want to say more intellectual audience, but it's a little bit more focused on uh, subversion than, um, you know, yeah, you know. they, they kind of are against like what is the popular trend in music. They've always been very experimental going back to craft work and what Brian Eno was doing. Um, you know, it's like Berlin is always I've talked to a bunch of bands in Berlin and that scene is it's all about experimentation. You know, they're, they're very much into whatever is cutting edge. Uh, they're very much into people, you know, doing live, you know, kind of old school in well, modern, you know, modular synth guys or, you know, side trance or people doing, you know, electronica, people experimenting with these big Euro racks. You got, you know, these synth heads going in, these massive Euro racks and playing 20 minute epics that are just like crazy. Like maybe a American audience wouldn't have the patience for that. But in Berlin, you can get people that want to see that, you know, want to hear that. Um, and so that's kind of, it's, it's, it's very encouraging if you're, a band that's kind of doing something a little off kilter or you're trying to do something more interesting, those audiences are more into it. And so it's always been, a, I actually got a booking agent that can get me overseas 
and then we got banned from going overseas. Really? Wow. <laughs> well, yeah, U.S. We can't get into Europe right now. We're kind of banned because because of our COVID rate. The European Union has banned like most travel from Americans going over there, and I got a booking agent just as that happened. Oh. I was like, "Oh, great! <laughs> wow, what are the time?" Yeah, yeah, and yes, is- <laughs> but. One day I'll get over. Yeah, exactly. And like what Connor was saying, we're just trying to big, uh, build a big following on like all the platforms that are streaming, um, like on Spotify, like Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, obviously. And you know, I I feel like we all know that we get a following, and uh, like a lot of people from overseas as well. Yeah, I think what's really interesting. It seems like Instagram is like the new musician's home for people who are doing, you know the kind of work when I was a kid, right? I'd listen, I'd listen to college radio, right? I'd listen to like independent radio and, you know, the old scene back then was like REM and SST with like Black Flag and Who's To Do and all these bands that were kind of on off, off kilter and stuff that you would see at CBGB's. Um, and, and it seems like, you know, that's, that's where that stuff is going on, you know? So in, in, in the U S like if you go on Instagram, you go on SoundCloud, you get on YouTube, you get on all the new media, you can get to where that, you know, where you would hear like an IREM back in the day. Um, you would hear them on a college radio station. And it seems like Instagram's kind of like that college. Radio oh, station. yeah, right. Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, it's beautiful now that we, it's kind of a mixed blessing. It's a mixed bag in the, in the sense that now that everybody's got access to the internet, it means that anybody can uh, put their music out there. It doesn't matter, you know, how you, how strange it might be. It doesn't matter how conventional it might be. It's all there. But at the same time, then there's also this dilemma of like, it's, it, be, it can become difficult. Uh, like people have to figure out marketing strategies, um, which is still, you know, a beneficial challenge, you know? Yeah. That's why, you know, the, the interesting story, I got into this podcasting to kind of, you know, broaden what, how I could reach my audience, and and it and it's actually worked. <laughs> um, but it's like it's not something like well, you know, I'm a musician. I'd rather be putting down tracks. But I found it's like well, this is actually a valuable thing because I'm a music fan. You know, before I was a musician, I was a music fan. It's like so fi- musicians finding alternative ways of connecting by doing podcasts or doing sync licensing or doing features or you know working with collectives. Uh, it seems like that's like the big new thing. Like if you can get in with a bunch of bands that are in a collective, jump on a collective tour, you know, sell collective merch, get into like kind of this kind of Grateful Dead mentality in the in a modern world, they, then you can kind of own it. Like what Tyler did with um, Camp Flogna, you know. Yeah. This kind of thing, you know, create this whole new scene and create his own venue because hip hop was having a hard time getting concerts and made the wall create my own concert <laughs> and then he can do he do his own thing that's the- yeah now like pretty much all the dope underground like experimental hip-hop artists want to be on his festival list like I, that that's definitely a good point he really did a good job of creating his own brand with his own unique thing that he wanted to do yeah like he saw the vision for like the obvious story is they tried to go through the traditional touring mechanism and like a lot of hip hop bands, they got they would get they would get banned, right? They 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 like cities didn't want them there because they said, oh they're they're this or that, so you, they could. So then the, the whole idea of being able to do that camp flogna kind of guaranteed 
this this more secure way of earning that you know and presenting those that those bands in, in a very unique way it's kind of like you know Lollapalooza happened before that you yeah. know we had the, that band that, that you know that was created um but it was interesting that a hip-hop you know community created that and then it's very progressive it has a lot of you know a lot of different bands play that and they're not all hip-hop so it's kind of cool to see where you can go i think the whole i think the nature of the business today is you got to like be willing to kind of cross lines no i agree i agree 100 i think uh it's kind of like to add what you're saying it's all about like uh creating like a platform like you mentioned like like grateful dead and and basically uh i don't want to say coming up with like a circus i mean that's kind of like what p-funk did too but you're 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 creating this uh this atmosphere that where everybody is kind of mutually uh, creating creating a community, you know. Yeah, it's the whole old hippie idea, you know, back in San Francisco. You know, the hate Ashbury kind of concept that you would just go play for six hours. Right? Yeah, and 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 you just have all these hippies hanging around, and you know, it just kind of are all on their VW buses, just following you from one gig to the next. And it's like that 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 kind of thing kind of works. You know, if you can get people. You know, Pearl Jam has a, you know, they might not be the biggest band anymore, but they're pro, like the Pearl Jam heads will follow them like the dick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So if you can get yourself into like this kind of scene where you get like your fans to be so into you that they'll buy all your live concerts, they'll buy your merch. You know, and that's the weird thing today. Like you can make more money selling T-shirts than you can't sell your record, Whoa. which is kind of sad. But but you know sometimes okay well maybe I'll take advantage of that and and and, and yeah maybe I make more money selling this T-shirt and then I can go do the next album because I saw all these T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, it's all about thinking outside the box, really, and just coming up with that next really like ev- evolutional step for music, and that's you know we're sort of all facing that during COVID, and you know Myrie and I were talking and just contemplating like how we can fully bring the music the live music to people uh at their house you know and it's it's going to be impossible but you know it's not going to be impossible yeah well if you guys thought about doing live you know people have been doing like the Instagram live and going on Twitch people have been going on you know YouTube live and Facebook live but there, I, I've been starting to get like um, companies coming to me, telling me they want to do these online concerts, and they want to they want to have like virtual ticket things where the tickets are like anywhere from a dollar to five dollars, and bands. But the problem is with some of this stuff. In order to do it right, you do have to have a, some a better level of equipment mm-hmm. to capture it. You maybe have to have you know some some really good web cameras, like some Zoom Q8s or something, and maybe a rolling video mixing board so you can get multiple camera angles but that I mean that's kind of like okay you do it with what you got and you start making money then you can get better equipment exactly <laughs> it's like any band that was on the road it's like okay you might have started off with like some some amps that you don't know who made them and then you get a marshall or you get some orange amps because you made the money <laughs> um so you just kind of as, as just okay well, what can i do to get away with it for the first ones and then as i get better i can get better cameras and then maybe i can get a 3d camera shot you know instead of a one camera shot um and then you can get better mics and better better video equipment so you can put like your website on it you know so somebody could streaming below you could have a paypal me link 
you know, streaming as people are playing. You say, please hit the PayPal me link. <laughs> yeah. There's all kinds of things that you can do. And people are doing it. You link yourself with some kind of, you know, techie kid that's into you. And, you know, have them say, hey, you know, you get you get to see us for free or something. And <laughs> and they help, help you build a, a better capability. That's all it is, is just having the network around, you know, and just building off of that. And that's that's so funny because yeah, it's like you you put we put all this work like the camera angles and all the recording and then to bring it to someone's phone you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You, do, you do all this work to get it like 4K and somebody's watching on a little phone they can't do yeah it, you know yeah and then the sound you put all this money into trying to give them like a high high definition audio and they're getting like through like their 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 their, uh, their Bluetooth headphones don't actually support Yeah, them. right. And it's sort of, it could be in our, to our blessing because, you know, we're in a time of where people like to listen to, like, in a sense, bedroom music. You know, a lot of artists are recording their music in their own home and their bedroom, and they have that kind of, like, relaxing feel. And people are used to, like, having that isolation listening. So you never know. We already have that. People, the majority of people might like to listen alone with headphones on, and who knows? Yeah, I think that, that the bedroom artists, I, I would say I'm a bedroom producer myself. I've been doing it for years. And it's, it's just interesting that you know, now everybody's in the bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now it's like, so it's like, it's like, oh, I've been there for a while. But um, it, it's interesting now everybody's in that in that position. But yeah, it, like three or four years ago, I was doing Facebook Lives as part of my, you know, recording my bedroom studio performances and, and just doing it. And now that's like the new thing the people to, to do that and it's like well i've been doing that for like four years that yeah exactly <laughs> but, uh, people people just want visuals you know yeah well visual is the main thing today is like i always tell bands like you know you can put all the effort into the audio but if you really got to get a youtube video you got to get something on vimeo you got to get it on instagram they get because then you get that worldwide audience then you suddenly there are people watching you in like central america and in Asia and you know Europe, and you're like, wow, I got fans like in all over the place, and you didn't know because the the video will reach them, you know, even more than than the music. And so that's always a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So are you guys are pushing toward trying to do more video type of uh, media for your work. Oh yeah, and uh, we we have a a, a guy that uh, we we actually really kind of consider a part of the band. To be honest with you. Uh, he basically does all our videography work. Uh, his name is Brian Peterson. Um, and he, he directed like, you know, a music, a couple music videos with uh, me and Amari for our other project, Profile Cool. Um, and uh, we, you know, we've, we've kind of like, we'll just go around like once a week and just like uh, take a camera and like, just we'll either jam or we'll go to some like exotic, like location that's, you know, not too far away. You know, I mean, luckily in Orlando, there's a lot of like, uh, yeah, stuff that looks good. Yeah, visually, I can see it would probably look more interesting than what I have here in uh, in New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, but that's beautiful too itself. So. Yeah, well, I take advantage of the woods. I try to take like I try to take my electronic music and go into the deep dark woods and then make it like 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 vampire like psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty cool concept. That's the way to do it, honestly. Well, you take advantage of what you got, and you say, "Okay, I got all these dark shadows and weird light coming through these woods, through these pines. Mm -hmm. 
and I can use that to kind of do a gothic vibe. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, yeah. So I like I would just go out into the woods behind my house and to go for a walk with my with my dog and then take my camera and shoot a bunch of stuff. And then and then run it through all kinds of filters and uh programs to like you know turn it into like more psychedelic stuff. Oh yeah. Well, it's interesting because it I, I, looking at your at your work, like especially your visual work, um well as well as your music too, it reminds me a lot of um like uh throbbing gristle like what Throbbing Gristle was, was doing and like, uh, like bands like Psychic TV, especially like the visual aspect, this like super psychedelic, like almost like, uh, I don't know. I was watching this Tim Leary documentary where it's like, uh, like very heavily edited and just like had this like very, uh, like it felt like you were like on acid or something like that. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like pretty straight laced, but I, my, my sensibilities are very much like a 60 child of the sixties. <laughs> yeah. I'm the so a lot of my visual work, I, I do a lot to use a lot of video tools to create that. And I kind of grew up with Hendrix and the dead and, you know, and Jefferson airplane and all that stuff. So I, I, I was influenced by it. And I, you know, if I get flashbacks from my youth, <laughs> and it gets, gets into my, my work. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I'm 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 definitely in the same boat. I'm definitely like pretty pretty straight laced too. I don't I don't have a nervous system to handle anything crazy. For me, the music is the music and the the art, you know, I mean is is it, you know. But I always appreciated that kind of work, you know, I'm always into what Andy Warhol was doing. I was into uh, you know, what Versailles was doing. I was into a lot of like stuff that kind of drove uh, you know, very cinematic, kind of off kilter. You know, it looks psychedelic, and it's like, why are you, why are you going there? So, well, kind of, that's where my sensibilities are. You know, in terms of like visual art, that's why I, I'd like that. Um, and so, so I'll go in that direction, but I don't have to have that it, that stimulus to get me there. My mind's already kind of, for some reason, it's already there. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, it's yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely understand that. Uh, you know, the music in itself can become a drug because sometimes when you hear something so crazy, it can like make your brain tingle. Like it has the ability to make you feel something in itself. Yeah, I think so. yeah, music definitely does drive that. Like if you get such, I'm a, such a big music fan. You know, I listen to every genre. I mean, I listen to Johnny Cash. I listen to The Clash. I listen to Public Enemy. I listen to Tyler. I listen to Pro Call Harem. You know, Orange Nine Millimeter. You know, Jay Z. I, I pretty much anything that's good, whatever genre is in, I'm gonna listen to it. And so I just kind of get drawn into it. And every music has a feel. And I kind of look at it like music is like a sound painting. And every you know musician is a painter, and you get different layers of that color from whatever they're doing. And that kind of what it drives my sensibilities because I can kind of pick up on the visual nature. You know, maybe I got like synesthesia or something, but I pick up on the visual nature of, of audio. No, I, I I love that. Yeah, that's that's very much how like we how we how we kind of think about music as well. It's just like like you said, like it's like a painting. Um, yeah, it's it's and it's interesting uh, just understanding the relationship between like sound and like the images that it might like evoke. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. The, the people had a, like a big um, kind of. Some people didn't like the idea of music videos back in the day because it kind of they felt like it took the imagination out of what you used to do. Like you know, I was a big vinyl kid. I grabbed you know like a, like a vinyl Yes album, go in the basement with a bunch of my friends, 
and and we listen to the you know yes album all the way through or fragile all the way through and there's no video you know we were just kind of like okay we're getting the interpretation of what we think it is and then kind of video kind of changed that and it was cool you know i was like a kid listening to duran duran and flock of seagulls and all that but um and watching it but I was like I did kind of miss the days when I would just go back with Zeppelin 4 and go in the basement and imagine all these Celtic weird things that Jimmy Page and Robert Plant were putting down it's like what are they really trying to get at you know oh yeah no there's a real powerful aspect to just the listening experience itself and uh for me it's it's I listen to music very similar like I'll sit down and uh, like on my days off or whatever I'll just sit down with an album and I'll like, I'll just drive around and listen to, I mean, that's still, there's still obviously visual like, stimulus there, but, um, and it's interesting because I feel like uh, albums are music in a way now that visuals have become more integrated with, with it, it's made the music itself less cinematic. So the music itself has become less visual while there, because there's, there's now a visual aspect. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because like a film director takes a, a video, I mean, a song, and then they turn it into a, a visual, and then that visual sometimes becomes kind of kind of well-worn or it becomes a little too, you know, pop or too kind of obvious. And it, it, like all the mystery of like listening to an album without the visual is taken away from you. And when you had bands that were doing progressive rock, like doing rock opera, like you know, like a like a band like the Who, doing Tommy. Yeah. Like if you had made a video for every song on Tommy, then you're going to interpret Tommy that way. But when you just heard it as the the rock opera without any visual, you got to interpret that story. Or you listen to like Pink Floyd, you know, any of their albums that are rock operas. And without the visual, you can kind of feel what it is. But when you put the visual in, it does make it less cinematic. Because the Pink Floyd albums, they're very cinematic. Mm-hmm. You know, they end up making films out of them, and they, they kind of changed your impression of it. But I would always, I, I, I didn't go watch the films. I kind of had my own vision of it from what I heard. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I definitely have like a very similar like like view on that. Like, I, it's weird because like people send me music videos. I'll, I'll literally just like go to the Spotify, and I'll just be like, I really don't want to see the visual because I, I don't want it to. To lock me in you know there's something about like you said like your your own mind going to to a place as, as opposed to having a preconceived notion of what uh visually you should be thinking about you know so are you guys with space adaptation syndrome are you guys working toward like a full-length project uh yeah yes um right now we we're working on a 13 track album um it's going to be uh self-titled um and uh, r- right now we're almost complete with uh, with tracking. Um, it's been, I mean, I started writing the guitar and bass parts about uh, about two years ago, um, and uh, then you know then we met you know me and Amari met um, met up and started a band called Propo Fool, and then we're like, well, we also want to do another side project. So I had enough tracks left over to kind of became uh, that became Space Adaptation Syndrome, and then you know we met Dimitri. And uh, it just, it just kind of clicked. And um, but yeah, right now uh, we're we're sitting on um, a thirteen track a thirteen track album, a self titled album that should be coming out um, by the end of this year. Oh, that's awesome! So I, I always like to let the bands I talk to. We we have talked to bands many many times where we have them come on and do another episode. So when that album comes out, 
I'd like to invite you to kind of do it like an album release episode where we can kind of talk about the whole project. Oh, yeah. Kind of maybe on the cusp of it coming out to kind of help you with your promotion. Yeah, most definitely. That sounds great. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah, yeah. So let us know when the best time impact for that would be. And we can get that kind of set up when you're closer to knowing you got it. Uh, and we can schedule that. I've done that with a couple of artists I've talked to um, when they have new projects out there. So, yeah, that, that'd be really cool. So we are getting to the end of our time at Anchor FM. Actually, we'll cut this off at like 75 minutes. I'm pretty close to that. But, um, yeah, I appreciate being able to talk to you guys. And um, I'm looking forward to all the work that you, that you have out there. We're going to put the links to all your space adaptation tracks. So we see two tracks out there right now. We like, want to tell everybody to make sure that they check out your band on all the streaming services where you're available. We are part of Spotify, so we'll kind of push the Spotify version. <laughs> uh, but um uh yeah just just check out like what, what you have like pale horses and self-induced and amnesia and um yeah we want people to go check those tracks out right now when after you hear this this will be out on all 11 podcast platforms that we're on which include apple podcast radio public um overcast stitcher and many many more oh perfect uh, including spot so this we will link our on our channel on Instagram. There's an integration between the Spotify podcast version of this podcast, and so when we push it out there, it will actually have a link that your fans can listen to the Spotify version of this podcast if they click the highlight that we're going to push out. Awesome. Um, so that, so that makes it a pretty cool integration where you can have a direct link and we'll kick it right off. Oh, that's awesome. So. So we'll get that out within the next hour and we'll send you the top three links, the, the Anchor FM link, the Apple link, and the Spotify link. And then uh, you can push it out to your fan base and uh, we'll be pushing out our blogger page as well. We'll put a blogger article out and we'll send that to you. Awesome. Well, thank you for having us. It's been a great opportunity. Um, it's, it's been really good to just talk to it's hard to find like other musicians that are like so into the same stuff that you're into, you know, thanks for having us on. And uh, we really appreciate it. Well, I enjoy talking to artists since I'm locked in my bedroom studio. This gives me a chance to talk to people and I don't feel so locked out. Exactly. That's what like, like you said, podcasting is going to survive through this. Yeah. Yeah. It really has been a really good thing for me to get uh, in connection with the like-minded people find out about other musicians and just keep the keep the faith and keep going in in the art i'm in, into you know with you guys so yeah i appreciate that you came on the show and we're gonna put this out hope all your fans dig it and we'll talk to you soon when you have your new album cool thank, thank you. you thank you